You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Some of you may have noticed that I'm uh, partial to eating. It's one of the great delights of living, I believe. And uh, I don't need any wisecracks about my weight. I'm fortunate to have been grazing in the good paddock for many years. I don't know what my favourite food would be. If you ask me, I'm sort of torn. There's so many. There's roast lamb, of course, is up near the top of the list. Lasagnas, corned beef. Satay chicken, beef schnitzels, pies, parsies, vanilla slices. I love them all equally. And thank God we have easy access to all of them here in wealthy Australia. Now, an observant person may have noticed a distinct lack of fruit and vegetables and salads in my list of favourites. It's not that I don't like them. Um, Although there are a few, of course, that I would avoid like the plague, but they're not my food of choice. I'm definitely a carnivore. But having said that, all food has some sort of value, even vegetables and even boring food and plain food has some sort of value. Some of it, of course, is better than others, both for flavour and for nourishment. But all food in some way helps to sustain us. So food preference really is a matter of personal taste and for some it's a matter of conscience. If all the cows and sheep suddenly died and I couldn't get a lamb chop or a steak I'm sure I'd have to learn to survive on vegetables and who knows I might even come to like them if I (laughs) ate enough if we were struck by a famine I'd have to learn to eat whatever was available to survive even if it was horror of horrors cucumbers and Brussels sprouts Lord may I never live to see such a time We need food to survive. But merely surviving physically is not enough. Human life is much more than just keeping the body alive. We need nourishment to the parts that are intangible, immeasurable, unquantifiable. We need nourishment to our minds, to our souls as well. We've all seen and maybe experienced the mind-numbing qualities of some TV shows. Now, There are some TV shows that are good, things that like the David Attenborough documentaries, Four Corners, the History Channel. They're shows that that educate, can challenge, can stimulate, and they make for interesting and worthwhile viewing. That's not so with some other shows, as I'm sure you realise. Days of Our Lives, for example, or Real Housewives of Wherever. (laughs) They're not designed to be educational, but rather... It seems to appeal to the lowest common denominator in our lives and to create white noise in the background of our lives. But we've been made in the image of God. We've been given minds that like to be and need to be challenged and stretched and nourished. Sadly, we too often get caught in the rut of turning on the TV of an evening and then effectively glazing over for the rest of the night. But what we consume with our eyes shapes us. It moulds us, and sometimes in ways that we might not like. Paul wrote in Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
The J.B. Phillips paraphrase I like, I've mentioned this a number of times. He puts it this way, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mind, but let God remould your minds from within. What we consume influences us. It determines to some degree what sort of life we will live. Not only do we need to be nourished mentally, of course, but we also need to be nourished spiritually. And there's only one source for that nourishment. Peter, the disciple, knew it. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 6, we'll be picking up in verse 16. Now, Jesus had thousands of people clamoring after him, seeking miracles and seeking to be fed and seeking to have a leader who would overthrow the hated Romans, but Jesus wouldn't oblige. He had more important things in mind than just earthly, temporal improvements. His intention was to change people from within by the power of his Holy Spirit so that they would feed on eternal things unto eternal life. The vast majority, as we know, weren't interested in what Jesus had to offer, so they abandoned him. They abandoned him in much the same droves that had chased after him previously. So I'll pick up the story in John 6, verse 60, where John writes, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Do you want to go away as well? I asked that question last week. When things get too hard, too confusing, too uncomfortable, the easy option is to go away as well. Why even make the effort to work out what Jesus is trying to say? Why even make the effort to obey his commands? After all, we've been conditioned to take the easy way out more often than not. The mind-numbing stuff that we choose to expose ourselves to and I don't just mean TV, but social media and video games and plenty of other stuff, it all trains us to get maximum entertainment for minimal effort. The world and the devil have been very successful at squeezing us into its mould. And to break out of that mould takes more effort than most of us have the willpower or the energy to do. So we remain in a rut. That's one of the reasons why people 
go away from Christ. It's just too exhausting to be a Christian. You have to work too hard. But let me suggest to you that if you find being a Christian is exhausting work, you haven't understood the gospel. The gospel insists that the Christian walk is a rest, not, not work, not an effort. Now, that's not to imply everything's beer and skittles when you become a Christian, but peace with God is not something that we have to work to achieve. It's a gift that is granted to us. If it feels like it's hard work, then I suspect you've misunderstood the message of law versus grace that is the gospel. But too much effort's not the only reason people walk away from Christ. For some, the reason why they go away is because despite all appearances to the contrary, they were never believers in the first place. Judas Iscariot is Exhibit A. Judas walked closely with Jesus for three years, but he never seems to have really believed in him. Judas had his own agenda. Now, Judases don't just live in ancient Bible stories. They live today too. You think there's no Judases in the modern church? I only wish it were true. We've been involved in two fine churches in years gone by, and both of them have been destroyed. And many good people badly hurt in the process by leaders who had their own agenda. They may not have been unbelievers like Jews. We can't judge their hearts because we don't know. But their actions were a betrayal of Christ and a betrayal of the flock. And in both instances, destruction followed. This is something we all need to guard against. Paul warned the leaders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, Paul addressed that warning to the leaders, but something we all need to be mindful of, because in both those churches I mentioned, it was the leaders who tore the flock apart. We all need to be careful that we don't slip into Judas mode promoting our own agendas at the expense of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be too easily deceived that what's important to us is what should the church should be doing. We can be too easily squeezed into the mould of the world and fulfil the enemy's agenda. Of course, Judases aren't the only ones who go away to. Some of them, feeling the pressure of being publicly identified with Christ, deny their law. Peter did, as you know. Even though Peter was the one making the most powerful statements about his determination to stand strong, and even if everyone else falls away, I won't, Peter denied his Lord when the pressure was on. If a man who walked and talked and lived with and learned from and shared meals with Jesus Christ for three years solid, could end up denying his Lord? So can you. So can I. What makes us so certain that we won't when the pressure is on? Paul wrote to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them 
Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. None of us can afford to be complacent. Lest we join the crowds of the so-called disciples who abandoned Jesus or betrayed Jesus or denied Jesus when things got tough. So what's the secret of staying the course of remaining faithful to him? The first thing you need to do is to settle the conviction in your heart that there is nowhere else to go. Just like Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let me tell you, if you depend on your feelings to give you confidence in Christ, you will abandon him a thousand times. Feelings are fickle. Feelings are unfaithful. If you're looking back to a one-time event sometime in the past when you walked the aisle and gave your life to Christ, again, you'll likely abandon him at some stage. But I walked to the front of the church and asked him into my heart, you might protest. I remember the day clearly. But the devil is a master at convincing you that you didn't really mean it back then. Maybe you weren't serious enough. Maybe you didn't really believe what you said. Maybe you walked down the aisle because your friend did. Maybe you didn't have enough faith for it to stick. The devil will make you work your fingers to the bone to try and convince yourself that that historic decision was a real decision. Or your conscience will flog you mercilessly every time you wander from the path and you'll be working to prove yourself worthy of salvation. Either one will cripple you spiritually. You'll go through the rest of your Christian walk wondering why this so-called rest seems like such hard work until eventually you decide it's all too much and you walk away too. Or at best, You'll plod along depressed and defeated and desperately trying to cling on to whatever flimsy strands of faith you have left. Or maybe the enemy will try a different tactic. Maybe he'll distract you with shiny promises and glittering enticements. Maybe he'll convince you that if you really are a Christian, you should be healthy. You should be wealthy. You should have all the good things of this life. The prosperity gospel that's propounded by some mega church leaders will begin to sound attractive. And you'll chase after all the goodies and all the trinkets, all the shiny things that Jesus' original hearers clamoured after. And you too will be lured away from the simple and beautiful gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and maybe even make shipwreck of your faith. The Bible is full of terrifying warnings about how easy it is for us to make shipwreck of our faith. And what if you never receive the health and the wealth that these false teachers promised you? What will you do then? Will you go away as well? Maybe that's too obvious for you to succumb to. Maybe instead the devil will whisper in your ear, did God really say? He'll call into question every word of God, every promise made, 
every hope held out until you decide that this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? There's only one hope of remaining faithful to the end, of finishing the race. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You must cling to him. You must cling to his word with all your might. Never let go. Now I talked at the beginning about food, good food and healthy food. I talked about how it nourishes our bodies and strengthens us. It's important what we put into our mouths. Food can build us up and strengthen us, or conversely, food can make us sick. It can poison us. It can even kill us. Jesus had made pretty clear earlier in the chapter, uh, John, John chapter 6 in his gospel, that there is such a thing as spiritual food. Food is designed to nourish us to eternal life. That sort of food doesn't necessarily do a single thing for your physical body, but it will build up your soul. It will strengthen your spirit and it will build you up to eternal life. It's no less important. And in fact, it's probably far more important what we take in with our eyes and our ears and our understanding than what we take in with our mouths. But what we consume will either strengthen us or it will poison us. By tiny amounts each day, we get either healthier or sicker. Have you noticed that when you try the diet, you don't lose 20 kilos overnight? You have to stick with that diet over weeks and months and even years to lose your weight. And if you begin to eat junk food, you don't wake up tomorrow morning 20 kilos heavier and fatter. The weight packs on slowly over time and so it is with spiritual food it takes time for the change to be noticeable now i don't know what was going on in peter's mind when he answered jesus lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life but certainly the concept is there in his words peter knew instinctively maybe that he would die of malnutrition without the constant source of nourishment that Jesus is and that Jesus supplies. Now, I can sympathise with those who have been hurt by the church. I've shared some of my story on occasion in the past and some of it is shaped by Peter's response here. When we moved to Melbourne 25 years ago for a work opportunity. Mel and I had both been Christians for several years by then, and we'd been very active in the church that we were leaving. They were family to us. So it was a pretty painful uh, leaving and a painful decision to move. But there were a few events that had led up to our move that left a sour taste in our mouths, or in my mouth at least, to say I was hurt and confused and disillusioned when we moved would be an understatement. I questioned my faith at the time. I questioned Christianity. I questioned whether I could even trust God. I felt that God had badly let me down. He'd made promises to me that he hadn't kept. And I too wanted to go away. So when we moved over here, I wasn't in a very good state spiritually. And it must say it took me at least a couple of years to, uh, well, for God to break me out of it, I should say. 
we found a church to go shortly after we moved over here. And uh, it's not that I wanted to go to church. It was the last thing I had on my mind that I wanted to do. Um, but I suspect it was probably as much out of habit as anything that I went along. But somewhere deep inside, I also had this nagging feeling that if I abandoned church, I would die. Now, not physically, of course. People abandon church all the time and they don't die physically. But I'd die spiritually. My faith would shrivel up until I abandoned Christ and walked away. And it wouldn't just be my downfall. My family would suffer as well. I'd be responsible for the spiritual deaths of my whole family. It was something that just niggled at me. I remember clearly the depths of despair that nearly buried me at the time. I can feel the fear that I would lose or abandon everything that I once held so dear. And I can still feel the inner torment of wanting so desperately to walk away, but knowing that if I did, I'd die. I don't know if I can properly explain to you how close I came to giving up on Christ and leaving just like all those other disciples did 2,000 years ago. The fact that my faith survived and I can stand here today is not something I can take credit for. It survived almost against my will. The only thing that kept me going was the same thing that kept Peter around. Where will I go? Where will I hear the words of eternal life? To walk away from church for me would be like walking out into a barren desert to starve to death. I somehow knew that subconsciously deep in my bones I knew. If I were to stop going to church, I'd die spiritually. I needed to hear the words of eternal life. I needed to hear God's word preached. I needed to hear it sung and prayed and talked about. I needed to hear the gospel regularly. And I still do. There's not a day goes by that I don't still need to hear the gospel. What kept me alive back then, I think, is that God's word had already provided sufficient nourishment, enough fat, you might say, on my spirit to keep me alive through that dry period. His word had prepared me for that dry period in ways that I didn't recognise at the time. I know even now if I don't receive the words of eternal life regularly, I'll waste away. And I'm not the only one. You will too. I'll waste away spiritually. My Christian faith will slowly, imperceptibly dry up until one day I turn my back on it completely. That's tragedy enough, but it would be a tragedy of my own making if that happened. If I deliberately replace a healthy diet of God's word with junk food, with the words of the world, the results are predictable. Malnourishment and death. There is no other result. And as bad as that would be, there's something worse. I'm not the only one who would suffer. As I mentioned before, my family would suffer as well. They too need to hear the words of eternal life regularly. Like it or not, I set the standard for my family. 
My leadership and my example is desperately necessary for their life too. And that's true even today. My kids are all grown up, married and with kids of their own. And yet my leadership is still necessary. They need to see me remain faithful. They need to see me committed to my Lord. They need to see that Jesus Christ is my everything. That without him, I would die. But that encourages them. It helps them to stay strong. It helps them to continue firm in the faith and run the race and finish the course. It helps them to lead their own families. It's evidence to them that the claims of Jesus Christ are true. My life is not my own. And Christian, your life is not your own either. It belongs firstly to another. It belongs firstly to Jesus Christ. But our lives also belong to our families. They belong to our brothers and sisters in Christ. What do they see when they look at us? Do they see someone for whom Christ is precious? Someone who refuses to let go of Christ? Or do they see someone for whom Christ is just another add-on to a busy life, a side interest that doesn't really have much impact on how you live? I hope that's not the case because that would be tragic and it may well be fatal. One day we will all be held accountable for those whose faith we've helped to destroy by our lack of faith and our lack of interest in Jesus Christ. They're sobering words. Now, as I said, going to church was the last thing I wanted to do 25 years ago. I was hurt. I was broken to some extent. And the church was at least partly complicit in that. So I can sympathise with those who turn their back on church when they get hurt. I can understand why they would say the church is full of hypocrites and want to leave it. Because the church is full of hypocrites. It's full of hypocrites because we're all sinners. But it's also full of people who recognise their hypocrisy and desperately want the Lord to make them right to make them into better people, more loving people, to make them more like himself. And let's be honest, if you abandon church because it's full of hypocrites, where do you think you'll go that's not full of hypocrites? To whom shall you go? Judas was a good churchgoer, you know, and there are plenty of Judases in the world as well. Do you really think that if you leave the church that you'll join a group of people who are pure of heart and motive? I don't think so. The church is not perfect, we know that. The church is full of people who at some point will offend you and hurt you. It's guaranteed. But you know, God made it that way for a purpose. I've seen too many people have turned their back on church because they've been hurt, and it breaks my heart. 
The church is God's idea. He designed the church for all its flaws and its failings. God designed the church. And he joins us to a church when he saves us and not just to the church universal. When we're saved, we should be getting into a local church as well. And he expects us to love that church as much as his son did. And how much did his son love the church? He laid down his life for it. If for no other reason, that should be enough for us to stick with the church through thick and thin and through all the hurts too. The church is designed to do a number of things for us. But the most important one, I think, is that it's a place designed that we should hear the words of eternal life regularly, frequently, and proclaimed boldly. It's designed that we should feed on those words among like-minded people, other people who long for the spiritual sustenance that is only found in the words of eternal life. Don't kid yourself. If you abandon church, if you abandon the regular fellowship of of the people and the regular preaching of God's word, you won't remain healthy. It's just not possible. It's like abandoning food and expecting not to get sick and malnourished. I have yet to meet the person who has done that, who has abandoned church and still remained grounded, faithful, and enthusiastic for the things of God. Without exception, they've either become whack jobs who get into all sorts of weird spiritual stuff and conspiracy theories, or they become bitter and worldly and angry with the church because you can't remain healthy on an unhealthy diet. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom will you go if you walk away from him? What will you do? What would you go back to? Would you return to your former way of life? Was that so attractive? Was that so enjoyable for you? For some of us, that was a life of shallowness, emptiness, ugliness even a life of sin and drunkenness and sexual immorality and cheating and lying. Is that really so attractive that you would turn your back on Christ for it? Would you go back to the secular worldly ideologies, go back to the illusion that mankind is improving itself with every passing generation, that one day there will be a blissful heaven on earth, a utopia of some means brought about by politics or something? Will an uprising of the masses bring about this utopia? Just ask the Russians under Joseph Stalin. How well did that go for them? You know that's nonsense. You know there's no life in that. You've been around long enough to watch humanity wreak even greater destruction on the planet with every passing year. You've seen enough that we, to know that we invent even more ingenious ways to exploit and oppress and slaughter each other with every generation. 
You've witnessed the increasing polarization and the greater depths of hatred even amongst families in these so-called enlightened and tolerant times. There's no coming utopia, not at the hands of mankind. What would you return to? Would you go back to agnosticism? Would you return to your never-ending questions about the meaning of life, about a higher power, about your place in the world? Questions can be good, but what good are questions that never find an answer? Who wants to live with confusion and doubt all their life? Would you return to false religions and false religious leaders? Did they provide you with the answers that you so desperately searched for? Did they supply the deep, inner sense of peace and satisfaction that Christ offers to all who come to him? Or did they leave you just as empty, just as exhausted as before? Would you return to your dead moralism? All the hard work of trying to be good, trying to obey, the incessant pressure to be better than the person next door so that you can feel good about yourself. Did that bring you peace and satisfaction? Did that please your wife or your friends or your parents? Did they really applaud your relentless demands to look good in the eyes of others? Were you ever really satisfied with the hypocrisy of putting on a good front when all the while you knew you didn't measure up to your own standards, let alone God's? Lord, to whom shall we go? If you've truly trusted in Christ, you know there is nowhere else to go. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. How can you then fall away? How can you turn your back on it? And even if you could return to the emptiness of your former life, Where will you go to escape Jesus? He found you there the first time. Do you think he won't be able to find you again? Psalmist wrote, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. There's no escape from him. And thank God there's no escape from him. Even if you do turn your back on him, he will not let you go. He will follow you and niggle you and hound you and he will make your life miserable until you turn back to him in repentance and faith. For you will never be able to escape the nagging feeling that you've left the only source of eternal food, the only source of life. You have the words of eternal life. 
And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To turn back now would be not only a crisis of faith, it would be dishonest. It would be intellectual suicide. For if you have believed, if you have come to know that he is the Holy One of God, what would it take for you to deny that, to convince yourself that it's no longer true? It can't be done. You can't unknow what you know. I thank God that he never allowed me to walk away from him. I can take no credit for it. For every emotion and every desire within me was to give it up. But his Holy Spirit wouldn't let me go. His Holy Spirit kept whispering to me, to whom shall I go? He, Jesus, has the words of eternal life. I couldn't escape if I tried. You don't need to find yourself in that place where you're questioning and thinking of going away. Stay close to him. Feed on his word. Make sure you regularly and frequently put yourself in the place where you can hear the words of eternal life sung and preached and prayed and talked about. Your life depends on it. Your life depends on it. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.